Hey there, English 3322 folks. Como van? Como están? How are you guys doing? This is Professor Pena. Today is day five of Glorians Aldua's Borderlands La Frontera. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Holy Relics, a uh, poem on 176. And then we're going to switch gears and talk Siwato uh, Woman Alone on page 195. Uh, and then I think I'm going to do the one right after Holy Relics, which is... Um, which is uh, Letting Go on page 186. Uh, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about structuralism and post-structuralism, uh, which I'll lecture on uh, in a moment. Uh, but first I just wanna get a climate check. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of um, another upswing of COVID-19 uh, cases. Uh, El Paso is shutting down. I know Houston is getting really uh, kind of scary right now. So I just wanna check in with you guys, see how you guys are doing uh, and see if there's anything I can do uh, to help you guys along as not only the economy uh, starts to slow and shut down, but uh, we start increasingly going back into uh, quarantine, into kind of lockdown. Uh, it's a really fascinating time if you've been looking at what's going on in Europe, particularly France and the UK, which are getting hit really hard right now. Uh, but I just want to say my, my heart goes out to all you guys. Uh, and, um, you know, I want you guys to be successful and whatever I can do to make that happen within this class, you know. If there's anything I can do to make your life easier, do let me know. Um, I'm not here to sort of, uh, I'm not like the sheriff. I'm not going to, you know, flash my badge and say, you know, oh, you must have this thing turned in on, you know, this date exactly or whatever. Um, obviously, we have deadlines because we have to move along in class. But um, if there's anything I can do to make your guys' life easier, just let me know, okay? Um, cool. Um, I'm going to just jump in real quick. Um, I'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible. Um, because I know you guys are probably busy, uh, and, um, I feel like I have a really clear idea today of, of what I want to talk about, which is, uh, structuralism and, uh, post-structuralism, which is, uh, and, and the way in which it relates to, uh, this, this concept, which is like the death of the author by Roland Barthes, uh, who wrote an essay by the same name, death of the author in 1967, and was a, a watershed moment, uh, in which we moved from structuralism to post-structuralism. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, and especially how that relates to Gloria Zaldúa. Uh, but first, let's get a good definition of post-structuralism. Um, this comes to us by way of uh, actually a Chicana author, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, who wrote this great document that she shared on Twitter, um, basically an introduction to critical theory. Um, Vanessa is a really good friend of mine, also an incredible poet. Uh, but I think also a, a really good thinker along the lines of, of critical theory and is just a great educator. Um, but I read this document. I was like, oh, my God, this is so germane and so astute to what I'm, I'm teaching right now. I felt compelled to, um, to, to bring it up in class. But you guys should check her work out, too. It's, a, it's just a Beast Meridian is, is the book. If I had time, I would absolutely teach it because it's a beautiful collection of poems. But um, anyway, she writes, post-structuralism, a radical break from the past ways of thought converging with Nietzsche, Nietzsche, the guy um, from like 19th century fame, and Heidegger in the psychoanalysis of Freud toward the, quote, decentered universe. Prior to this, man, as the Renaissance slogan had it, was the measure of all things in the universe. White Western norms of dress, behavior, architecture, intellectual outlook, and so on provided a firm center against which deviations, aberrations, or variations could be detected and identified as, quote, other and marginal. In the 20th century, however, these centers were eroded and deconstructed. The First World War 
destroy the illusion of steady material progress. The Holocaust destroyed the notion of Europe as the source and center of human civilization. Scientific discoveries such as the theory of relativity destroy the ideas of time and space as fixed and central absolutes. And intellectual or artistic revolutions such as modernism rejected central absolutes such as harmony and music, chronological sequence and narrative, and the representation of the visual world in art. The resulting universe we live in is, quote, decentered or inherently relativistic. The decentered universe is one in which, by definition, we cannot know where we are since language is now unreliable and all the concepts which previously defined the center and thus the margins have been, quote, deconstructed or undermined. Therefore, the text itself becomes the object of stability. The death of the author frees the text from its context or what the author might have intended or crafted into the work, and from this radical textual independence leads to the birth of, of the reader, right? So what, what this is, is sort of getting at is the idea that the reader is as much as participant in the text as the author themselves. And I think so much of Anzaldúa actually demands that of us. Um, not to say that there are schools of thought, like a post-structural school of thought or a, or a structuralist school of thought, though those definitely exist within um, literary theory, right? Uh, but there is some evidence to suggest that, you know, what Gloria Anzaldúa was writing, as much as there was a center to every word she writes, there's also kind of a vagueness or a thirdness too, um, this concept that she's playing on within the text that allows us to see beyond what the center of that word is. I'll give you a, I'll give you an example the the title Borderlands La Frontera right we have a very centered definition of what that means in our mind right we think of like the Texas Mexico border or we think of the borderlands as a space as a psychic space um, or we think the border is within ourselves but what Glodian Zaldúa is is also doing too is you know whatever her intent with that word is we can also infer through sort of what the material presented that there's sort of a shadow right beneath that word. Uh, in which we can talk about the thirdness, right? This borderlands as an infinite space, not just a line, but something that opens up into uh, infinity, right? Um, and so I like this idea of of reading Gloria Dua through a, a post-structuralist uh, lens, uh, not only because every word suddenly has less of a center. It, and what I mean a center, I mean like when we think of that word, we have an exact idea of what that word is. Everything becomes relative. Everything becomes, you know, as much as we have that word, there is the um, photo negative of that word that is also present, right? Uh, this is sort of a it's it's another lesson, but it's it's a it comes from this idea of deconstructivism, which comes to us from uh, Derrida, a French philosopher, uh, who came up with that term deconstructionism, in which. Uh, uh, a text not only has, uh, you know, the, the meaning that is intended uh, by the author, but also a meaning as it's interpreted by the reader. Language is imperfect, right? And so there's a kind of ambiguity. There's a kind of built-in thirdness there, if we're thinking along the lines of Anzaldúa, that is also a part of the text. So a text has, you know, multitudes, right? A text has different layers of being read. Um, and the idea is the death of the author means that there is a kind of a third, like a... Uh, the the reader is as much as part of the experience of a text being written than the author is uh, for having created it. You know, post-structuralism infers that there is a kind of, uh, it is in opposition to something. Structuralism, right? 
And structuralism is the kind of thing that we've been doing thus far in the course, actually. Um, we have this idea of the author as the sole um, sort of like God of the work. The author is being held up to this thing, and we're always trying to figure out what the author meant, right? It's sort of the first level of reading anything, but it's also the level in which we're trained in in like high school, uh, maybe some of our freshman seminars. Uh, what is the authorial intent? And the idea is that you cannot um, take a text uh, and pretend that gets written in a vacuum, right? The idea that a text uh, is sort of in conversation with not only the author who wrote it, but the context in which it was being written. Um, so I'm an author, right? Like I'm a Mexican-American writer. Uh, if someone were to read my book, which is Bang, they would say, well, this writer is not only a writing about the Texas-Mexico border, but he's from there and it's, it's been informed by his research there. And that also becomes part of the book. Um, today, that's most how most books are sold. But uh, back in the day, like way back in the 20th century, before World War I, um, that was kind of the mode of critical thinking too. What is the authorial intent? And post-structuralism is all about what, not only what was the author's intent, but what are the other intents? What, if if language is imperfect, meaning that, if language cannot always correctly express what we mean to say, then what other meanings are there? So it's like the book is an artifact, right? So it takes it, it completely says that the author is dead. The author should not be, the, 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 the work is produced, the author produced it, thank you author, but now we have the text and what is the text actually saying? On what terms? And, and what are the shadows of those terms? Meaning the sort of like poetic devices, like, you know, um, Yesterday I was reading about um, uh, uh, the uh, someone was saying that the, that someone's hair color was brassy, and I and it had two connotations: the color of like brass, but then also sort of brassy meaning sort of like loud and and like you know it has like two meanings or three meanings, and whether by accident or by uh, you know purposefully writing that way, uh, there is a kind of inferred meaning that goes beyond a kind of thirdness, right? And that's essentially what post-structuralism is. So let me continue reading here. Um, so, so if we have the courage, the implication is we will enter in enter this new Nietzschean universe where, where there are no guaranteed facts, only interpretations, none of which has the stamp of authority upon it since there is no longer any authoritative center to which uh, to appeal for validation of our interpretations, right? Um, this is intriguing to me for a few reasons. Uh, not only because we take Borderlands La Frontera um, out of uh, the valence uh, or the context in which it was written, which is, you know, 1980s, Gloria Anzaldúa, you know, author of a certain kind of, uh, of text in the midst of a certain kind of borderlands, uh, but we can also apply it to like the 21st century. If the author is, you know, it's a, it's a dramatic term that the author is dead, Roland Barthes says this, but if we can take it out of that context and we can put it in and we can say, well, it means something different to the reader, it's a way in which you can always keep the text alive because the text changes, right? Borderlands La Frontera becomes something different um, by virtue of who reads it. Uh, and so I think about this too, like the way in which we're reading it in this year, uh, and I'm recording this in, uh, in the fall of 2020, in which um, stock market was going back up, continued to crash, oil is at historic lows, Exxon just laid off 1,900 people. Um, we're in this massive sort of third space between the before and the after, and we don't exactly know what the after is going to be yet, uh, but we're in this sort of hybrid space in which there's a, the meanwhile until we're waiting for a vaccine. The borderland something means something 
totally different to us than it meant to Anzaldúa. Um, and that's okay, right? It doesn't necessarily take away from Anzaldúa's work. In fact, it sort of complements it or decenters it and keeps it alive uh, in our own mind. And so I'm interested today in reading these poems in a context through the lens in which we're, we're currently reading it today, in which uh, the author is dead and we have authorial intent in a way to interpret it the way in which we want, but also the words mean something different today uh, as language evolves, as the current events evolve, as um, the text evolves by virtue of who's reading it. And so uh, that's kind of what I wanted to get us, get us at today uh, and ground us in those things. Um, so I just want to read a short list of, of this great sort of things about what post-structuralists do, right? So post-structuralists, they read the text against itself so as to expose what might be thought of as the, quote, textual subconscious. That's where we were talking about the idea of like brassy versus like brassy, right? Brassy as loud versus brassy as the color, but there's a kind of shadow meaning there, right? There's a, there's an expanded meaning. Where meanings are expressed, which may be directly contrary to the surface meaning with the purpose of, quote, knowing the text as it cannot know itself. Two, they fix upon the surface features of the words, similarities in sound, the root meanings of words, a, quote, dead or dying metaphor, and bring these to the foreground so they can become crucial to the overall meaning. Three, they use deconstructive reading to uncover the unconscious rather than the conscious dimensions of the text, unpacking what textuality glosses over or fails to recognize in order to show that the text is characterized by disunity rather than unity. A, for example, the word guest has the same original root as the word host, which in turn comes from the Latin word hostis, meaning an enemy. This hints at the potential double aspect of a guest as either welcome or unwelcome, or as changing from one to the other. This notion of, quote, hostility, then, is like the repressed unconscious of the word, and the process of deconstruction reveals the unconscious of the text. This can be done with etymology as well as with other disciplines. It's interesting, and Gloria Anzaldúa kind of gets into that a little bit. You know, she breaks apart the... Uh, she literally deconstructs Donatzin, right? La uh, Virgen de Guadalupe. And she says, you know, we have this one meaning, but then we also have this sort of pagan meaning, right? And we also have this sort of, uh, uh, um, also sort of this other meaning, which is uh, uh, related to the sort of the serpent, right? Which is like kind of the exact opposite. If you've been to like a Catholic church, there's uh, Mary stepping on the serpent. Uh, and so there's a kind of like a deconstructive, there's a meaning, there's also a shadow meaning. Um, the fourth objective, they seek to, quote, undo surface or literal readings in order to carefully tease out and reveal warring forces of signification and darker implications beneath the text. Thus, a text may betray itself and unmask contradictions, subversions, and biases that can only be felt in a surface reading. Five, they look for shifts, breaks, absences, and omissions of various kinds in the text and see these as evidence of what is repressed and glossed over in the silence by the text, right? That's an interesting thing to me, the ways in which the silences or the empty space in the text becomes just as important as the text itself sometimes. So now that we have a sort of grounding in post-structuralism, death of the author, and we can start looking at ourselves as almost like authors in our own right in the ways in which we're reading the text, uh, we can suddenly become sort of conscious to sort of hidden meanings or alternate meanings or warring meanings or the ways in which maybe the text betrays itself uh, to create this kind of third space. And I think in our, you know, the time that we're living in right now, this 2020, uh, this sort of um, 
moment of uh, incredible upheaval, incredible uh, cultural uh, shift in the ways in which we think about health, in the ways in which we think about community, in the ways we think about commerce, capitalism, frankly, everything, oil, transportation, energy, everything. Um, these texts have some kind of meaning. And so I really want to exercise today uh, really bringing those meanings to light and saying, you know, what is it that we have? How has the text changed by our reading of it and the way in which uh, we see it in 2020? So if we go to page um, 176, Holy Relics, uh, we'll go ahead and get into the uh, the, the piece proper. Um, this poem is essentially what uh, what it's a, it's a kind of a true account about what actually happened uh, with uh, Teresa of Avila. Uh, if you don't know it, uh, essentially this priest, uh, this father, had gone in and uh, opened up the coffin. If you don't, uh, he essentially just carved up the body and and, and used it as relics, and it was kind of a grotesque thing that happened. Um, uh, but the relics were everywhere. They found themselves uh, everywhere from Lisbon, Portugal, to Paris, France, uh, to uh, in the pocket of Franco himself, who was uh, this dictator uh, during the Spanish Civil War, uh, was a fascist dictator in Spain up until like the 70s, 80s, uh, when I I think the king of Spain, they reestablished the monarchy, and then he, he got that done. But on... Franco, they found a piece of this um, of this saint who was known in her day for levitation, actually. She was really embarrassed that she could levitate, and um, she asked her sisters to hold her down. She became kind of a spectacle in the villages. You can imagine, uh, 1500s, uh, if someone's just levitating, they'd be like, whoa. But, you know, anyway, it, and, and the crazy thing is there's like multiple accounts of this um, it wasn't like she's like, I levitated. It was like she levitated and everyone saw it. <laughs> and word got around that she was levitating. It's kind of cool. Anyway, uh, page 176. This is called Holy Relics uh, for Judy Gran and V. Sackville West. And remember, we're reading this through a kind of post-structuralist phase. So whatever your interpretation is of it, right? What does it mean to you in 2020? We're going to practice that today. We are the holy relics, the scattered bones of a saint, the best-loved bones of Spain. We seek each other. City of Avila, 88 crenellated towers crowning a low hill. A silent landscape rises toward Indigo Mountains, empty save for clumps of broom and tormented elex, here and there strange stones like prehistoric ruins. A granite city in a dour land, with a cathedral for a fortress. A land where no mists soften the rocks, where light is relentless. When she died, flesh of our bones, they buried her at the Alba de Tornes, 50 miles west of Avila. They finally buried her in her patched and shabby habit, buried her in her thread-worn veil, bricked her in a wall of gray stone. Nine months she lay in the gray stone, Nine months she lay quietly. Her daughters, the nuns of Alba, came to her daily, came to that bricked-up place in the wall. From that place issued a scent to which they could give no name. From within that tomb issued a sound to which they give no name. Immediately, I'm just thinking of like the tomb and that play on the word in a post-structuralist sense. And it's one letter off of womb, right? 
which is interesting to me. You think of this sort of cavernous space, uh, this sort of death crypt, uh, which is a, a kind of womb, like a return to the womb or a return to the earth. Uh, again, that's just one post-structuralist reading of this, but you can see how that you decenter that word from what it really means, and, and suddenly it has a, a whole new um, resonance, right? Uh, especially in this idea of, of holy relics. Uh, there's a death and then a kind of rebirth, right? Uh, and of course, we know because they take her out of the tomb. Day by day they waited. They waited for the good Father Gracian, Teresa's beloved confessor, waited to tell him of that scent and of that sound. Entombed nine months, four days it took them, four days in silence, in secret. The nuns held the torches while father and friar shoveled. The nuns held the torches, then cleared away the rubble. At last she hollowed moment, the hollowed moment, the coffin pulled from the cavern, the moment when the lid is broken, when the coffin is opened. They gazed at last at their beloved, spider webs, netted black hair to eyebrows, earth clotted, arched, her arched nostrils. They gazed and gazed at their beloved. The nuns of Alba removed her moldy habit with knives scraped away the earth clinging to her skin, looked their fill, then wrapped her in a clean linen. The good father drew near, lifted her left hand as if to kiss it, placed a knife under her wrist, and from her rigid arm he severed it. The father Teresa had loved stood smiling, hugging her hand to his body. We are the holy relics, the scattered bones of a saint, the best-loved bones of Spain. We seek each other. Already here, and I'm just thinking of this in a purely Catholic sense, and it is a Catholic poem, is we have this kind of like, um, almost like a, like a prayer in the middle of it, right? We uh, are the holy relics, the scattered bones of Spain, the best-loved bones of Spain, right? Uh, and it's interesting to me because it's like, it's a refrain that keeps repeating almost like in a rosary or something, right? You have a, you have about uh, so many uh, Hail Marys and then you, our, our fathers and you get the Hail Mary and then you keep going and you keep going and we kind of get one of these, it's like the middle bead, right? Between two strings of prayers. Two years she lay in her tomb. Pero para los santos no hay descanso, but for the saints there's no rest. Oh, she says it in the next sentence. For the saints there are no rest. Another priest fell upon her tomb to claim her holy body for Avila. At midnight he sent the nuns to the upper choir to sing matins, then quietly removed the bricked-up stones, quietly reopened the tomb. The mysterious scent in her unspoiled face, a little more dry than before, greeted him. And bright red, as if freshly soaked, was the cloak of white bunting. They had staunched the flow from her mouth at her deathbed. So that's such a really grotesque image, right? Think of the bunting, the sort of like that cushiony stuff on the side uh, that had stunted, that has staunched the flow from her mouth at her deathbed. Uh, you know, it like soaked up the uh, the stuff, all the the guts and blood and stuff. It stained whatever piece of cloth touched it. The scent drifted to the upper choir, drawing the nuns down to the tomb like flies to honey. It's in time to see Father Gregorio de Naciancin insert his knife under the truncated arm. In time to see the blade pass through the flesh as if through cheese. And flinging the arm at the nuns of Alba as one would a bone to a dog, he detained them long enough to mount the shroud on horseback and gallop away. We are the holy relics, 
the scattered bones of a saint, the best-loved bones of Spain, we seek each other. Through the bitter winds of Avila, Teresa raced from the grave. She traveled at night, and briefly during the run, she stopped to resuscitate a dying child with the edge of her blood-stained rag. Paused to heal the fiery eyes of a shepherd, toward the eighty-eight towers in their indented embrasures they galloped, through the streets of Avila, past high-walled houses where black eyes behind the lattices stared down at the shroud riding on horseback into San Jose convent. He took her and placed her upon a bright carpet. A small group gathered around. Each held a flaming torch. All were crying. Later, one witness described the corpse. The body is erect, though bent a little forward, as with old people. It can be made to stand upright, if propped with a hand between the shoulders, and this is the position they hold it, when it is to be dressed or undressed, as though it were alive, the color of the body is of the color of dates, the face darker, because the veil became stuck to it, and it was maltreated more than the rest. Nevertheless, it is intact, and even the nose is undamaged, the head has retained all its hair, the eyes have lost their vital moisture, are dried up, but the eyelids are perfectly preserved. The moles on her face retain their little hairs. The mouth is tightly shut and cannot be opened. The shoulder from which her arm was severed exudes a moisture that clings to the touch and exhales the same scent as the body. News of her disinterment spread. It reached the ears of the Duke of Alba. He petitioned the Pope for the immediate return of the body. One more Teresa traveled, traveled at night, away from the 88 towers, through the bitter winds of Avila. She galloped toward her grave. Abbots on well-fed mules turned and gaped. Peasants stopped thrashing their corn. They followed the mysterious smell and saw it cure amongst malaria. Through the gates of Alba, the priest rode. He laid the shroud before the nuns, raising his torch high. He uncovered the body. If these be the remains of your foundress, acknowledge them before God. Again, she lay quietly in her granite grave. The third time she was exhumed, a crowd gathered. Uh, round, eyes coveting her body, over ardent fingers, fingers that had once had loved her, pinched off pieces of her flesh. A priest raised her one remaining hand, gave a sharp twist snapping of two fingers. Another grasped her right foot, and blessing her, severed it from her ankle. A third fell upon her breast, and from her side plucked three ribs. Scraps of her, of her bones they sold to the aristocracy for money. They auctioned tiny pieces of her fingernails, and one small white tooth. Again, they laid her in, in her gray stone grave, and priests fell upon her body. Her dried carnal husk could still be torn into morsels. They cut off her head, laid it on a cushion of crimson satin, embroidered with silver and gold. Like a crippled bird it lay, left, gouged out, left eye gouged out, right eye protruding through full lashes, its black lone gaze frozen. A fifth time they dug her up years later, a gaping hole where her, her, her heart had been ripped out to be placed in a reliquary. Three centuries later, physicians would examine it, would find a wound an inch and a half in length, the edges of the wound charred as though by a burning iron. Above the high altar at Alba, the fifth and final resting place, lie the remains of a woman. We are the holy relics, the scattered bones of a saint, the best-loved bones of Spain. We seek each other. It's such an interesting and intriguing um, poem. 
if I'm thinking of this in post-structuralist terms, meaning that it is the death of the author, uh, meaning that there's no, it's not to say that the author is taken away from the meaning of the poem, but that the meaning can be decentered in a way. I can't help but think of the kind of uh, the barb, the sort of uh, teasing that Lorenz Aldua does, um, not at the Catholic Church necessarily per se, though some of that too, but at the aristocracy who benefited from the Catholic Church. She says, you know, the aristocracy, and they, they sold these things off for money, these relics, right? Um, and I can't help but think of like the Frankfurt School. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Frankfurt School was a school of thinkers based out of Frankfurt, Germany, uh, in, the, in the time, the interim period between World War I and World War II. But there was this, um, this theory that came out of the Frankfurt School that um, there are four modes of, of think or four modes of uh, society, right? We go from feudalism toward mercantilism, toward capitalism, to communism, and there's an evolution. Um, whether you believe that's true or, or not is, is neither here nor there, but I, I keep thinking about this because it's a similar critique. And that the idea is that in feudal Europe, which is around the time that Teresa was, was, was living, right? Uh, in, the, in the interstitial time between uh, feudalism and mercantilism, feudalism was sort of in the medieval times. All that meant was that there was a king or a duke uh, who owned a lot of property. And as a peasant, you worked that property uh, and you own, you rented a little plot there. But the idea was you worked for the king and you worked all day and you worked all night. And the idea is it was very subsistence. You didn't have many possessions. You were a peasant. And then mercantilism created a very small, narrow middle class, right? Um, as goods move between the new world and the old, uh, as the rise of sort of like gold sort of comes from the mountains of the South America and, you know, the Valley of Mexico and make their way into Spain and then eventually into the, the coffers of banks in England, um, suddenly those, you know, there becomes a small middle class of people who are able to profiteer off of that. And that's where we get into mercantilism which is the preamble to capitalism, which is arguably this era, well, it is this era that we are living in right now, in which um, the idea is there's a large middle class or a larger middle class, and there's a there's a kind of social navigability there as you can sort of have purchasing power. Uh, and the idea is that it'll get so bad eventually that people be so abused under capitalism, uh, they'll be so exploited, uh, meaning that, you know, working longer and longer hours for fewer and fewer wages, eventually they will throw the yoke off and go toward a kind of like socialism or communism. Uh, and the Frankfurt School says that is the final iteration of it. Um, not communism as a sort of, um, uh, as a party, as we saw like in the USSR, or as we saw in, uh, you might see in like China today, but communism as, a, as an ideology, as a way of being, you know? And, and there's a kind of, there is, I, I can't help but think of like the echoes, and again, in a very purely post-structuralist sense, thinking of the echoes of Grodan's Aldua saying, we are the, um, you know, we are the, uh, are the holy relics, the scattered bones of a saint, the best loved bones of Spain. Uh, riffing on this idea that like, as mestizos being part Spanish, you know, we, so far in this text, we've always drifted on the, or sort of dwelled on the indigenous part of, of, of the text. But there's a kind of like, the Spanish part has not really been discussed. I think this is her way of interrogating that, uh, talking about not only the perversion of of, of uh, colonial era Spain and the way in which the body was not just uh, this sort of uh, thing that was just a, a vessel, but was something that could be um, 
you know, sort of uh, infused with a sort of blessed or a spirituality as well, right? Uh, you literally have the idea like the Corpus Christi, right? The body of Christ and, be, and the holy relics become body. Like she's sort of riffing on this idea that suddenly too, we are the, we are part of that body or we're part of the larger body of Spain, like these forgotten children that were left in the new world, uh, which is an interesting facet, right? Um, we are part Spanish, but we, we have nothing to do with Spain, but we are sort of in a way that Teresa for being sort of more than became almost like carved up by the aristocracy or carved up by, um, the church that sort of bends toward that aristocracy. Uh, you could say the colonial body as well is, is part of this, uh, uh, sort of the fallout of that as well. We're one in the same of that kind of saintly body, uh, victims rather, or that victimhood, the idea of us being carved up, of us being exploited, used uh, to financial ends is um, is the story of the new world, uh, is the story of colonialism, of Spanish colonialism. And so when she says, you know, we are the holy relics, she's putting herself on that same, and putting like all mestizos on that same plane as uh, as Santa Teresa, but also this idea that you know, to, to be mestizo means to be half this, half that, or part this and part that, like a hybrid of, of, a, of a bunch of different cultures. And I think that's what she's saying. There's that Santa Teresa is not fully there. Um, they made her a mestiza too, right? If only by taking away part of her. She's sort of in this third realm. She's transcended. She was literally levitating, right? Um, toward this third space that is between heaven and earth. She can still bless from beyond. She's still earthbound, but she's in heaven. Um, but there's, she's, there's a kind of mestizaje going on with Santa Teresa as well, uh, before that even concept even exists. But, but I think about this ways in which physically, actually, materially, um, the ways in which these bodies have been impoverished, uh, I can't help but think of the Frankfurt School. I can't help think, but think of uh, the ways in which that drifts into, uh, or connects the colonial world into, uh, into a kind of post-colonial it's really interesting. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see your interpretations of it. What is your post-structuralist interpretation of it? Uh, obviously, I, I would connect that to 2020. Like my interpretation by talking about the Frankfurt School, I feel like you guys know my politics. If you guys have read anything I've written ever, uh, if you haven't, that's okay, right? I'm not that famous. But if you want to read something, uh, just go check it out. You'll, you'll sort of get a vibe of my politics. But I can't help but think in this moment, about everyone on the front lines, the way in which people are consistently being exploited uh, or being put in danger for kind of like a diminishing wages, right? How much is your health worth really? Is it really worth $12 an hour that you're doing, you know, like you're bagging at HEB or something like that? So I can't help but think of the Frankfurt School. In 2020, this is my post-structuralist interpretation of this text and this sort of like idea of mestizaje. And to that end, our own bodies, right? Our own bodies under the threat of COVID-19, the things that it takes away from us, the ways in which it takes away health, or the, th the ways in which it takes away our dignity or our means or of fully living, right? Um, suddenly we are diminished in a way, pieces of us are taken away. Uh, there's an own, we're, it's a transition into our own kind of mestizaje, uh, our connection in the before and the after, right? That would be my post-structuralist interpretation of this. But you see how it completely changes from a structuralist point of view, right? There's probably what Gloria Zaldúa meant when she wrote 
this, uh, and we can delve into that, and we can definitely, you know, get into the seeds and into the roots of like what was it that Gloria Anzaldúa wanted us to to glean from this. Um, but again, this isn't about that. This is about we can we can do that, but this is about the death of the author, right? Now it's just us, uh, which is kind of fun. Anyway, let's go to. Uh, I believe I said next one we were going to do was letting go. No, we were going to do. See what. Siwatl Yoru, Woman Alone. It's a good poem. It's kind of a... Typographically, it's fascinating because it's got a lot of empty space, which is a facet of post-structuralism too. Like, what is what is there and what's missing, right? What do the spaces do? Uh, and that's kind of what I want to talk about with this poem. Before I do that, I'm going to get a drink of water because I haven't had a drink of water in like an hour yet. Ow, yum. Okay. Siwadal Yodel, Woman Alone. Many years I have fought off your hands, Rasa. Father, mother, church, your rage at my desire to be with myself alone. I have learned to erect barricades, arch my back against you, thrust back fingers, sticks, to shriek no, to kick and claw my way out of your heart. And as I grew, you hacked away at the pieces of me that were different, attached your tentacles, Pardon me, I'm actually reading the spaces here, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> I realize this might sound weird to you, but those, those pauses are spaces. To my face and breasts, put a lock between my legs. I had to do it. Rasa, turn my back on your crookening finger, beckoning, beckoning, your Soft brown landscape, tender nopalitos. Oh, it was hard, raza, to cleave flesh from flesh. I risked us both bleeding to death. It took a long time, but I learned to let your values roll off my body like water, those I swallow to stay alive become tumors in my belly. I refuse to be taken over by things, people who fear that hollow aloneness, beckoning, beckoning, no self, only race, vecindad, familia, my soul has always been yours, one spark in the roar of your fire. We Mexicans are collective animals. This I accept, but my life's work requires autonomy, like oxygen. This lifelong battle has ended. Raza, I don't need to flail against you. Raza, India, Mexicana, Norteamericana. 
There's nothing more you can chop off or graft on me that will change my soul. I remain who I am, multiple and one of the herd, yet not of it. I walk on the ground of my own being, browned and hardened by the ages. I am fully formed, carved by the hands of the ancients, drenched with the stench of today's headlines. But my own hands whittle the final work, me. It's an intriguing poem. There's a lot of empty space there, as you can tell from the reading. Obviously, I think thematically, maybe she was trying to riff on this idea of uh, of pieces of her that have been cleaved away. Thinking of herself as sort of like a, a relic in, in a way. Um, to this end, you know, I think of what's not there. And she, I don't think she mentions the word relic. I'm looking through her again. But there's definitely this play on on relics. Your soft brown landscape, tender nopalitos. Oh, it was hard, Rasa, to cleave flesh from flesh. I risked us both bleeding to death. Right? There's this kind of like, you could tell this was a traumatic separation or a traumatic, uh, in a kind of sense, a rebirth, right? And I think of sort of the yonic, the sort of like tomb, womb metaphor in a post-structural sense, and this sort of like this idea of cleaving oneself from one's culture, but then also this rebirth, right? Uh, in, in the ways in which these empty spaces are also working. And I can't help but wonder if there's a kind of interpretation there. Uh, not only in, the, in that in that sort of like sense of, or a metaphorical sense, but also in the sense of like transcendence. Um, what is the yoke that Gloria Anzaldúa is throwing off here? I think in a way it's it's sort of, it's this kind of provincialism, this kind of uh, this this critique of of the patriarchy, right? Uh, which he says Mexican American culture is inflicted with, or afflicted with rather, and that which demands a certain space and role and duty of of her. Uh, and she says, "My body, my my way of being, uh, my ideology, my growth does not fit into this." And so this is her really struggling with that, right? This this struggling into the in this third space, um, this painful cleaving. But she's saying these are the borderlines within myself. Uh, but I have to move into a thirdness, uh, a way that is is a is a both a separateness and 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 you know a beyond. I can't help but think of uh, in this poem. I can't I can't help but think of. Of uh, if I'm giving this a, a post-structuralist reading, um, the way in which like there is to become to fully self-actualize is actually an incredibly painful thing. It's it's a it's something there's a trauma that really people don't talk about quite a bit, but we've talked about that with education. But we've also talked about that. I'm looking at this line right here. This I accept. Might be about two-thirds of the way down. But my life's work requires autonomy, like oxygen. This lifelong battle has ended, Rasa. I don't need to flail against you. Rasa, India, Mexicana, Norte Americana. There's nothing more you can chop off. It's such a sad thing, too, because I, I like... 
you get the sense that there is something lost or there's a mourning for something lost or, you know, there is a power in this, but she's, she's saying, I no longer need you. I need this oxygen to live. But with something that's chopped off, right, we get that sort of shadow meaning, which is like something is missing as well. Um, something is gained, but something is lost. Uh, and what is that thing that's lost? She says, I remain who I am, multiple and one, of the herd, yet not of it. I walk on the ground of my own being, browned and hardened by the ages. And this is a sense in which, in a post-structuralist reading, you would say maybe the text even betrays itself. Um, you remember from earlier in the in uh, in the in the passage on in, in the first section where she talks about as many ways as many ways as there are Mexicans, there are ways of being Mexican. And so when she talks about the Mexican tribe, I do wonder about this idea. She warns in early on against simplifying it, against simplifying what is the Mexicano, right? What is Mexican? What is the uh, um, the Mexican American? And she says, you know, they're everything from, you know, Anglo's looking, English speaking, you know, kids in Texas, all the way to sort of like in very indigenous Spanish speaking or native speaking tongues and everything in between. Right? There's a kind of there's a kind of spectrum and as many kinds of uh, we talked about the concept of many Mexicos, and I wonder about this sort of like, what is Mexico in her mind? What, what, or what is this sort of raza mestiza, norteamericana, indígena? Like, what center is she speaking toward? Because if, if there are many Mexicos, is she sort of split from each of those? Um, and in and in which sense is she feeling? Which which of those is she feeling alienated from? It's a, it's an instance in which maybe the text even betrays itself and becomes this sort of artifact of like, well, you have a very centered definition actually in your mind of what Mexican is. Like, what is that thing, you know? And so I, it's a, it's an interesting poem for me because I feel like if I'm reading this uh, correctly, I'm saying, well, you know, if, you, if we're like like the, the North Mexican slash South Texan culture of sort of like Norteño, is, it, is, that, is that the kind of machista? Cause it, or is it kind of like you look at the... Uh, the the Taramura tribe or or the Oaxacan tribe in which the women are the matriarchs of, of society and they become like there's there are many kinds of Mexicos uh, and so anyway I do wonder about this uh, this poem and like what is missing exactly um, I'm gonna end with uh, I think I said it was which one did I want to do I think it was letting go. Yeah, let's go to Letting Go, page 186. And I guess think, thinking of these things in a, in a purely post-structural sense, right? It's not enough deciding to open. You must plunge your fingers into your navel with your two hands, split open, spill out the lizards and horned toads, the orchids and the sunflowers, turn the maze inside out, shake it. Yet you don't quite empty. Maybe a green phlegm hides in your cough. You may not even know that it's there until a knot grows in your throat and turns into a frog. It tickles a secret smile on your palate, full of tiny orgasms. But sooner or later, it reveals itself. The green frog indiscreetly croaks. Everyone looks up. It is not enough. Opening once, again you must plunge your fingers into your navel with your two hands, rip open, drop out dead rats and cockroaches, spring Rain, young ears of corn, turn the maze inside out, shake it. This time you must let go, meet the dragon's open face, and let the terror swallow you. You dissolve in its saliva, 
No one recognizes you as a puddle. No one misses you. You aren't even remembered, and the maze isn't even of your own making. You've crossed over, and all around you space, alone with nothingness. Nobody's going to save you. No one's going to cut you down, cut the thorns thick around you. No one's going to storm the castle walls, nor kiss awake your birth, climb down your hair, nor mount you on the white steed. There's no one who will feed the yearning. Face it, you will have to do it. Do it yourself. And around, all around you, a vast terrain, alone, with night. Darkness you must befriend if you want to sleep nights. It's not enough letting go twice, three times, a hundred. Soon everything is dull, unsatisfactory. Night's open face interests you no longer. And soon again you return to your element. And like a fish to the air, you come to the open, only between breathings, but already gills grow on your own breasts. Right. It's an interesting, you know, passage. The most famous bit of this line or of this poem is actually that section. Nobody's going to save you. No one's going to cut you down, cut the thorns thick around you. You're going to have to do it yourself, right? No one's going to mount you on the white steed. This is the idea of letting go of this idea of, uh, of a savior, right? Letting go of, of, of the old ways of being. Uh, this is part of, it speaks toward the last poem, letting go of the patriarchy, letting go of the known world, moving into the third space, letting it completely uh, inhabit you in a way, right? I'm here looking at the, the second stanza. Yet you don't quite empty. Maybe a green phlegm hides in your cough. You may not even know that it's there until a knot grows in your throat and turns into a frog. It tickles a secret smile on your palate full of tiny orgasms, but sooner or later it reveals itself. The green fog indiscreetly croaks. Everyone looks up. It's not enough opening once. Again, you must plunge your fingers into your navel with your two hands, rip open, drop out dead rats and cockroaches, spring rain, young ears of corn, turn the maze inside out, shake it. Again, that sort of like duality of, of maze or that double decentering of the idea of both maze, M-A-Z-E, like a sort of maze, and mice, which is like corn, right? It's this sort of uh, this Aztec imagery of sort of like the sustenance. Uh, but right next to it is this grotesque imagery. Uh, and there's something going on between the grotesque. We think of the cockroaches and the, and the rats coming out of the navel. Uh, and uh, this imagery of rot, which we also get from uh, the poem on Santa Teresa, Holy Relics. Um, and this 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 idea of like uh, empowerment, right, and rebirth. Uh, right next to the holy is always sort of like this demon. There's you know, Gloria Anzaldúa is always fascinated by these sort of uh, dualities, these sort of binaries that that, that approach. Um, but this third space is kind of like, if I'm reading this in a purely structuralist lens, I can't think of like there's a kind of empowerment in the grotesque or an empowerment in having moved past the grotesque, right? If I'm thinking thinking of this in the era of COVID-19 in the post-structuralist sense, and I'm reading it through the lens of 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 2020, rather, what what I'm thinking along the lines of is like, yes, these times are grotesque, yes, these times are terrible, but then how strong are we for being able to continue to uh to move through it and to function every day and to continue to get up and to sort of seize the day and, and to do the work that we need to do every day, right? To go to class, to listen to these podcasts, to continue to write the papers, to do the work, right? No one is going to uh, cut the thorns around you or, you know, no one's going to mount you on the white seat. Trust me, you're going to have to do it yourself, that whole thing. And I think what Glodan's I'll do is saying there's a kind of like, you know, as things are taken away, other things are added. And there's that, that negative space 
is also a space for something to be added, I think. I should rather say. And there's something kind of empowering in that. In the grotesque, there is beauty, right? In the pieces taken away, there is something put back. And what puts what gets put back there is is up to us. That's kind of a novel idea. That's kind of an interesting idea, I think. Um, the idea that as parts of us are diminished, we can rebuild them with something that is is idealized or more than or or beautiful, right? We don't have to be or remain diminished. Uh, and part of that is sort of buying out of the culture that says, oh, you are diminished because X, Y, and Z. And she's saying, this is painful, right? This is my homeland. This is my sort of like uh, the place where I find my part of my identity. Uh, but as I move forward, you know, I can keep the parts that I want. And she says some of it, she talks about it like a like the leftover like phlegm, this sort of like croak in the throat that becomes almost like, think of it almost the subtext there right beneath that, we're decentering it in a post-structural sense. It's almost like virus-like, right? And so if I'm reading this at the 20th century or 2020 gaze, man, I said 20th century and then I said 2019 a few minutes ago. And when I'm reading this at the 2020 gaze, I'm thinking of like lingering virus, lingering uh, stuff that if we have a diminished health, if we ha if we somehow succumb to uh, to this illness, how is it that we create a path forward, right? What it and it, what do we replace that stuff that's taken away with? Is it something beautiful? Is it something empowering? Uh, is it the knowledge? If is it only the knowledge that we survive this and we can continue to survive this, and that we can continue to go forward, and that we are uh, as a species, as a people, as, as a person, as an identity, as a you know that there's something there. I also can't help but read into this poem this idea of like community, right? And what does community mean within the self? We always talk about community and interrelationships between someone else, but we rarely talk about it, what it means in the, um, in the psyche of the individual, right? A person's uh, relationship to one's community. And what does it mean to belong, right? What are the ways in which belonging or community are changing right now, especially amidst the pandemic? I think of these things a lot. So you see how the text changes depending on who's reading it, what time they're reading it. Um, and it sounds destructive, right? It sounds like, oh, we're getting away from the author's original intent. And certainly we can read it with that structuralist idea in mind, but it also keeps the text alive in, in, in that it means something different to other people. And so um, it speaks toward, toward the now. And to this end, I think there's something really interesting happening with not just Gloria and it, but like a lot of American literature. Um, there's literature that was written in the before and literature that's written in the after. Uh, and there's a really interesting, you know, what 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 is what is what do we need right now in the after? And I think it's something you might you guys might think about not only in the terms of what you're seeking out with literature and film and 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 books and all that stuff and music, but you know, in in yourself, like in your own lives, like what is it that you're seeking out? You know. Cool. That's what I had for you guys today. Um, I hope this lesson was short and impactful. Uh, I'm looking at the clock right now. I think I got it done in under 60 minutes. It looks like I got it done in 55 minutes. Uh, but anyways, I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys are hanging in there. Um, if you guys have any questions, hit me up at penyad at uhd.edu. Uh, and uh, cool. All right, guys. You did. You guys take it easy. I don't know. I, I like, got flipped up on my words there. I had the whole recording perfect and then I fucked it up in the last 15 seconds. It's okay. All right, guys, you guys be good, okay? Bye.